Greetings and welcome once again to Author in the Room, a monthly program sponsored by JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. My name is Dr. Shute and I will be your moderator for today's call. We are delighted that you could join us today. As you know, Author in the Room calls are designed to translate new knowledge, what is published in a recent JAMA article, into actionable steps that can improve clinical practice and patient outcomes. Author in the Room occurs on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, with the next call being on January 21st, 2009. The article for that call will be Effect of a Low Glycemic Index or High Serial Fiber Diet on Type 2 Diabetes, a Randomized Trial. Please join us. Several organizations have made Author in the Room a regular part of their learning experience, and we certainly encourage everyone to do so. Today, our featured authors are Dr. Brett Tomes and Dr. Roy Ziegelstein, uh, authors of the recently published article, Depression Screening and Patient Outcomes in Cardiovascular Care, a Systematic Review, which was published in the November 12th issue of JAMA. Uh, Dr. Ziegelstein is Professor of Medicine, Division of Cardiology at Johns Hopkins University of Medicine. He's also the Vice Chairman of the Department of Medicine at Johns Hopkins Bayview Medical Center. He is a member of and co-investigator in the Johns Hopkins Center for Mind-Body Research. His major research interest is on the effects of depression and emotional stress on cardiovascular disease outcomes. And Dr. Ziegelstein has numerous publications on this topic. Dr. Brett Tomes is an assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry at McGill University and is also a clinical psychologist at the Sir Mortimer B. Davis Jewish General Hospital. He has strong interest in the illness experience of patients, including interrelated somatic and psychological symptoms that are common in medical illnesses, particularly cardiovascular and rheumatologic diseases. His work involves the evaluation of behavioral health services, including the detection and treatment of depression. He has authored numerous articles on the psychological aspects of health and is on the editorial board of several prominent medical journals. I want to welcome both of you, Drs. Tomes and Ziegelstein. Uh, thank you, Dr. Shute. Uh, this is uh, Dr. Ziegelstein speaking uh, first. Uh, actually, Dr. Ziegelstein, before you start, let me give a little bit more context uh, to the listeners. Uh, as moderator, it is my job to help focus our discussion on the, on the application of our author's research with the goal of driving performance improvement based on this article. The purpose of Author in the Room is to hear directly uh, from the authors about the research findings and then translate this into improvement in your practice. Here's how the hours will proceed. Our authors will spend about 10 to 15 minutes summarizing their findings. I will then take just a couple of minutes to draw out some implications for the real-world practice setting and then set the stage for us to take your questions and comments. I want to stress how important your participation is in these calls. This is a great forum in which you get clarification of the information in the article itself and to contemplate with others the significance of these findings and the steps that you may take in using this information towards the improvement of care. Your participation, not just in terms of questions, but also offering up your experience in this area will be very helpful. There are approximately 60 phone lines connected to the call today, generally with several individuals participating per line. Some members of the media may be present today in a listen-only or uh, background basis only. One other note, this call is being recorded and will be made available on the IHI and JAMA websites as streaming audio or podcast. Complete details and instructions are available under the program section of IHI.org. Prior author in the room calls are also available on these sites. Now let's get started. Let me again thank uh, both Dr. Ziegelstein and Dr. Tomes for joining us today. And uh, Dr. Ziegelstein is going to begin uh, with a brief summary of their article. Go ahead, Dr. Ziegelstein. Uh, thanks, Dr. Shute. Um, the way that we're going to uh, divide uh, the first 10 minutes um, is I'm going to very briefly talk a little bit about what our study uh, isn't. Um, then Dr. Toombs is going to talk about what it is, and then we're going to sum up by just talking a bit about some of the potential implications of our study uh, for health policy. 
The reason for beginning with what our study is not, rather than what it is, um, is that uh, the timing of our study uh, publication in JAMA was very close after uh, an American Heart Association scientific advisory on uh, routine screening for depression in patients with cardiovascular disease. And, and in part, I believe, because of that timing, um, the article that we are discussing today uh, generated a lot of attention in the media. Uh, and in some cases, uh, some of it uh, has been has misrepresented what uh, was said in our study. Um, so we want to begin very simply by stating uh, a very uh, simple point. As a psychologist, that's Dr. Toombs in Montreal, and a cardiologist myself here in Baltimore, uh, who have spent really the majority of our careers focusing on depression in patients with heart disease um, and calling uh, in our professional lives for more attention to be paid to mental health and illness um, in patients recovering from a heart attack. We are most certainly not recommending that clinicians not look for or be aware of depression or that they should pay less attention to it in patients with heart disease, as some people have um, misinterpreted our study to say. We actually recognize that depression is very common in patients with heart disease. We recognize that it's important in its own right. It contributes to poor quality of life and may actually in its most severe forms be fatal. And then we also understand completely that people with depression who also have heart disease are at increased risk of heart-related illness and death. And in fact, our research has contributed to this literature. What we are saying is that the evidence right now does not support screening for depression in patients with heart disease. And one of the major points that I would like to make is that paying attention to inquiring about diagnosing and treating depression are very, very different from screening. Um, many of the people on this conversation who are uh, callers in are quite expert in the uh, field of screening. Um, but many are likely not. <clears throat> I just want to cover a little bit what screening is because, in fact, our article is more about screening than it is even about depression. Imagine if the police, for example, uh, issued a statement that since drunk driving is so common around the upcoming holidays and since it's an important cause of traffic accidents and fatalities, they were going to stop every single car that passed a point on the highway to do a breathalyzer test, test on every single driver. Now, some might actually advocate such an approach, and some might argue that it would catch more drunk drivers than simply looking at erratic driving behavior. Um, but the truth of it is that the benefits of this type of strategy are unclear, um, and the system really can't handle screening of this type. In addition, there might be some untoward effects of stopping every single car. For example, um, somebody might be identified as drunk who might actually not be, um, or somebody might wind up speeding after a long delay caused by the mass screening and then get in an accident that might otherwise not have happened. So again, the major point here is that our study is not saying that we should pay less attention to depression, but quite the contrary, what our study is talking about is screening. Um, I'm going to let Dr. Toombs continue at this point. Uh, thanks, Dr. Ziegelstein. Uh, so I'll talk a little bit more about what screening is in a healthcare context and then what, what our study found about screening for depression in cardiovascular care settings. Uh, in any kind of healthcare setting, when, when a healthcare provider interviews or examines a patient and inquires about or looks for something that uh, might be the matter, that's, that's not screening per se. That's good clinical care. And good clinical care hopefully happens across many, many settings in our healthcare system. For instance, from my perspective as a mental health care provider, I might be with a patient and recognize that patient is experiencing symptoms of uh, suggestive early arthritis. Now, while I'm not expert, certainly not expert in diagnosing early arthritis, I would hopefully talk to the patient about this and maybe make a referral to a rheumatologist in our hospital. Similarly, you know, a rheumatologist or a cardiologist might recognize possible symptoms of depression and assess and, and triage by speaking to the patient about it, inquiring, and then referring appropriately, perhaps. The rheumatologist or cardiologist might even use a questionnaire 
They might use a PHQ or a Beck Depression Inventory or some other questionnaire to even follow up on their suspicions and provide further evidence that maybe perhaps the patient has depression. Again, this is, this is good clinical care. This is not screening. Screening, on the other hand, is carried out with otherwise asymptomatic patients, people who don't have any personal or family history to suggest that they are at elevated risk of a disease, depression in this case. And the goal is to, to cast a wide net in order to, to identify as many patients as possible who we can then further investigate to see if they do indeed have depression or another, whatever uh, condition we're, we're looking for. So in screening, we then use a, we always use a particular test. For example, if we're examining stool for the presence of small clients of blood to try to detect something like colon cancer. We acknowledge that a positive test result in itself doesn't necessarily indicate the presence of the condition being screened for. And the test might not even be completely accurate. Uh, for example, a positive uh, test for blood in the stool might occur in somebody who's taking certain medications or foods, even if blood isn't present in the stool. Even if a positive test does result from the presence of blood itself, the blood could be from hemorrhoids or another benign condition rather than cancer. Furthermore, we have to recognize that a negative test doesn't necessarily mean that colon cancer is not present. Typically, experts need to consider the, both the benefits and the risk of screening for condition when it's important and common, like colon cancer in people over 50 years old. Before we recommend screening on a population level or across the board in any kind of patient group, we need to analyze both the benefits it could potentially provide and risks that occur, carefully considering the evidence supporting the benefits and detecting the condition, the evidence that patients would benefit by from treatment if they're screened and subsequently diagnosed as having the condition, and also the potential harms, physical harms, emotional harms, and financial harms to people who are, may, may be inappropriately identified as having the condition and perhaps even inappropriately treated for it. We also need to consider harms from the sense of a healthcare uh, resource perspective in the sense that if we're spending resources on a program that's not beneficial or has very small benefits, we're not using those resources for something else. Our study examined the potential benefits of depression screening in patients with cardiovascular disease. We looked at the accuracy of depression screening instruments in cardiovascular disease populations, the effect of depression treatment on depression and cardiac outcomes, and the effect of screening on depression and cardiac outcomes in patients in cardiovascular care settings. So we, we, we reviewed the literature to seek studies in each of those areas. We assembled a team of many of the world experts in this area. We performed a systematic review, and we eventually identified 11 studies that looked at the accuracy of screening tools in patients with cardiovascular disease. We identified six depression treatment trials. We did not identify any clinical trials or any other trials, even observational studies, that look at the effects of screening on depression or cardiovascular outcomes. What did we find? We found that depression screening tools were reasonably accurate, although certainly not perfect. And in fact, they were, they were performed pretty similarly to what we'd expect in a primary care setting where there's a lot more evidence. Overall, we found that screening would uh, probably detect about four out of five heart disease patients who also have depression. Similarly, it would uh, correctly identify about four out of five patients without depression as not having depression, meaning, however, that one in five who don't have depression would, have, would test positive in most scenarios. We found that about 15% of patients across all the studies we reviewed in screening tools had major depression. Given that, our findings indicated that fewer than half of those who are identified by screening tools as possibly depressed would actually have depression when evaluated more thoroughly. And while that in itself is concerning, perhaps a bigger problem is that the evidence doesn't show that individuals identified as depressed by this process benefit substantially from treatment. Treatment effects were generally very small. So our analysis of the evidence showed that depression treatment with medication or cognitive behavioral therapy 
resulted in only modest reductions in depression symptoms, and there was no evidence that depression treatment improved cardiac outcomes. Now, we should point out that our evidence review did not address the potential for harm of depression screening. And, in the, and the idea that screening in itself might be har could be harmful might be surprising to some people. Indeed, at one point, uh, one of the reporters who interviewed us asked us, are you saying that asking people a few questions about depression could be harmful? And in a sense, we agree with the gist of that question that, it, that it, it's unlikely that patients would be harmed by completing a depression questionnaire. In fact, I, I'm quite sure that they wouldn't be harmed by that. However, screening isn't, isn't just giving a questionnaire. Screening is a process of giving a questionnaire and what happens next. We know very little about potential harms, for instance, of false positive depression screens being labeled as having a medical disorder that we describe in common parlance and commercials in the popular press as a chemical imbalance, for instance. Research from some other areas that have looked into screening at a much deeper level than we have so far in mental health suggests that there could be negative emotional or behavioral implications of false positive screens, indicating that people have, have depression in this case who actually don't. All this evidence hasn't been systematically integrated, and again, like I said, we don't have research on this for psychiatric screens. Other potential harms might include medication side effects and financial ramifications of taking a medication unnecessarily with little benefit if optimal assessment and care isn't provided. And we know that we don't currently have systems in place to provide adequate assessment and care for all cardiac patients who would screen positive if screening were actually implemented as standard practice across the board. So for those who aren't familiar with screening, these findings, or those who are familiar with screening, these findings may, be, may not be surprising and might sound familiar to other health conditions. For example, in considering whether to screen asymptomatic adolescents for scoliosis, the United States Preventive Services Task Force, the USPSTF, notes several things that bear some similarity to the topic of our review. First, for instance, the USPSTF did not find good evidence that screening asymptomatic adolescents detects idiopathic scoliosis at an earlier age in detection without screening in clinical settings. They also noted that the accuracy of the most common screening test for scoliosis is variable and that there's poor follow-up of individuals identified in screening programs. Second, they found only fair evidence that treatment of idiopathic scoliosis during adolescence leads to health benefits and in only a small proportion of people. They note, most cases detected through screening will not progress to a clinically significant form of scoliosis. This may be very similar to the situation of depression screening in heart disease patients. And finally, they found fair evidence that treatment of adolescents with idiopathic scoliosis detected through screening leads to moderate harms, unnecessary brace wear, unnecessary referral for specialty care, for instance. So as a result, they concluded that the harms of screening adolescents for idiopathic scoliosis exceeded potential benefits. Related to this, there's currently no evidence that screening for depression in cardiovascular care, as important as depression is, would detect a large number of patients not already being treated for depression or who would not otherwise be detected by a primary care physician or another health professional. We don't have any studies telling us how many patients picked up through screening would be patients previously unidentified who have severe enough symptoms of depression to possibly benefit from treatment. Many patients who would pick up through screening might qualify for a diagnosis of major depression, but have relatively low levels of overall symptoms, and many of those would clear substantially without clinical action. So, although the, as we mentioned before, that shortly before a study was published in JAMA, the American Heart Association issued a science advisory, which is also endorsed by the American Psychiatric Association, that calls for routine screening of heart disease patients for depression. Our study found that without considering, even without considering the potential harms, that routine screening for depression really is not supported by the evidence at this point. Um, so before we pass it back to Dr. Shute, I'll pass it to Dr. Ziegelstein, who will talk a little bit about implications for our study on health policy. <clears throat> so thank you, Brett. Um, just very briefly, uh, I'm looking forward to the discussion um, of this topic because um, I think what, uh, what we all should agree on is that depression is very important. It would be an ideal situation if all cardiovascular disease patients were seen by a cardiologist like myself jointly side by side with a psychologist or psychiatrist, um, but that's not the case. Um, in other settings, for example, um, uh, care um, 
uh, strategies have been developed, for example, anticoagulation management, depression management, even uh, palliative care management, where experts in that area are matched with internists or, or subspecialists to provide optimal care to patients. And one of the things that we uh, would like to uh, pursue is additional research uh, in clinical care models um, in which um, patients with um, um, uh, both cardiovascular disease and mental illness might be taken care of both by cardiologists matched with psychologists or psychiatrists um, rather than the broad-based screening that has been uh, recommended by the American Heart Association. And we look forward to the discussion to ensue. Dr. Shute. Great, and thank you very much, uh, Dr. Toombs and Dr. Ziegelstein, uh, both for your, your excellent work and for your wonderful job really clarifying uh, what this study is and what it isn't. And if I may editorialize briefly as a primary care physician, I actually feel a certain relief, in fact, uh, from your recommendation that these patients do not need routinely screened. And it is the challenge I think many of us face in healthcare of being overwhelmed by all the things that we really should do, frankly, without good systems to support us in doing that. Uh, so I want to thank you for that at one level. On another level, though, you really leave us with a fairly strong imperative is that uh, we're not really allowed to forget about this problem or to move on. I think you've really tasked us with trying to find much more effective ways um, for identifying those patients who do need treatment and treating them. And so now I'd like to turn um, our discussion uh, certainly to questions clarifying the work that you've done, but also to begin thinking a little bit more about how your research suggests that we might be changing practice and where do we begin if we do want to turn these findings into better patient care. Now we're going to go ahead and turn to questions from you, our callers. Uh, your questions can obviously include implications of the research or how to apply this in practice, that is translation. Please also feel free to share or ask about examples of what you are already doing in your practice uh, for comment by the experts. So now I want to turn it back over to Erica, who will um, brief you on how the question and answer period will go and get us started. Erica. Thank you. The question and answer session will be conducted electronically. If you have a question, please signal by pressing star 1 on your touchtone telephone. If you're on a speakerphone, please make sure your mute function has been turned off to allow your signal to reach our equipment. Once again, for our phone audience, please press star 1 on your touchtone telephone to ask a question. We'll hear first from Mark Dreskin with Kaiser. Hi. Um, I'm um, calling as a uh, physician lead of a program uh, that does actually work with um, depression and the cardiovascular uh, population on, on quite a wide scale, and, and we have actually consulted with Dr. Frazier-Smith, uh, interestingly. Um, but what I um, wanted to pose was a question related to cardiovascular risk factors as opposed to cardiovascular outcomes um, uh, per se. Um, and um, it's, it's in, in this uh, way. Uh, we studied our population for changes in um, hemoglobin A1C, uh, blood pressure, uh, LDL. Um, if depression screening affects these through some sort of surrogate endpoint, for example, the other JAMA study that came out recently with um, how uh, depression, not necessarily screening, but depression treatment actually had patients get more physically active and that that was perhaps the um, uh, surrogate for, for later having a, a, a utility of, of focusing on these patients. Is there anything that, that may have suggested that these uh, other uh, areas, comorbidities, et cetera, are improved by depression screening and then focus on the patient and then uh, bringing depression into remission? I don't know of any any evidence that that's somebody's any shown that. Roy, do you want to comment on that? Um, no, I think it's a. It, I'm not aware of any studies, uh, um, for example, that have uh, looked at that specifically. Um, it's a little bit out of my um, area of expertise. For example, specifically, the one that is um, uh, that is most tempting to respond yes to is the hemoglobin A1C uh, issue. I believe that there has been some work on. Uh, depression um, management uh, and its effect on glycemic control in diabetics. But uh -huh. that, again, that's a little bit beyond 
my uh, particular uh, area of expertise, it would make sense um, that um, uh, that this might be a, as you say, a surrogate endpoint. And the reason it would make sense is that um, <clears throat> obviously patients with depression often are inattentive or suboptimally attentive to um, what you might say are healthy behaviors. Yes. Um, and our previous work um, showed that uh, when we uh, assessed patients during their hospitalization for an acute myocardial infarction mm -hmm. and they were depressed, uh -huh. and then we compared them to people who were not depressed at the time of their MI uh -huh. and then looked four months later, uh -huh. what we found out is that if you were depressed in the hospital at the time of your event, uh -huh. that your likelihood <laughs> four months later of following what we would call healthy behaviors, uh -huh. for example, exercising, taking medications as prescribed, yeah. um, following a diabetic diet if you were diabetic, et cetera, uh -huh. those things were all worse if you were depressed than if you were not. What we don't know, though, is the next step, which is if you treat depression, do these risk factors improve? Again, the one that's most tempting to say yes to is hemoglobin A1C, but it's a little bit beyond my uh, my knowledge base here. And uh, the other question, I guess this is re with respect to some of the points that you were making, Dr. Ziegelstein, about um, your following up with the patient after the fact. And uh, um, I'm wondering about things like anxiety disorders. I, I, I'm certain, you know, the, the database on this, uh, the data that could be analyzed, uh, analyzed is, is even thinner. Um, but a patient who has anxiety disorder and then um, this depression history, um, or, or excuse me, this cardiac history, it may be able to help you predict what sort of symptoms they have on follow-up and, and um, had, had this entered uh, into your thinking and looking at um, how to look for mental health conditions as a whole or was, was depression the only thing that, that you thought would affect us? Well, I, th I think if I can answer that, I think for now this is, this is specifically about depression. I think you're right that the, the literature on anxiety, unfortunately, would, would be very thin, although it's clearly an issue for many people with cardiovascular disease. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. And I, th I think, too, it's, it, we should come back and, and talk, and, and what, it, what is screening? So there's, looking at indicators of prognosis and using tools to do that mm -hmm. could be one use of, a, of a, a depression questionnaire. Yeah. But that wouldn't be screening, per se. So okay. That would be very different function. Screening, again, would be that we're, again, seeking to identify people who we don't otherwise think have any reason to think based on their behavior or based on their history uh -huh. uh, might have depression and we yeah. give them all across the board give them a depression questionnaire yeah and then we we go we, we, that begins a kicks in a process yeah oh, so that that's very different than using these things to for any other kind of monitoring purposes or otherwise it's interesting if i can kind of go back a little bit to your first first comment oh please yeah so the, i think you were talking about the Huli article that just came out right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah so one thing I want to think, just to clarify, so that wasn't that wasn't about treatment. Whether they looked at prognosis of, um, uh, in terms of cardiovascular outcomes, uh, and how it was related to depression. So they basically said, does depression affect cardiovascular outcomes? And they found, like many studies, that it does. Uh -huh. What they did then is they said, but what if we take into consideration inactivity, exercise it? Uh -huh. They um, and what they found is that when they put that variable in their models. Uh -huh that depression no longer was related to outcomes. Mm -hmm. so there, was a very, there was a robust effect for behavioral inactivity. Mm -hmm. But the, now they, they went on to suggest that that should, should advise how we might, uh, given the modest um, effects we get, for instance, for um, current depression treatments, maybe we should look seriously at exercise and mm -hmm. activities, um, behavioral intervention for people with depression, and I think that's an excellent point. Mm -hmm. What I would also add to that, though, is that is that that behavioral factor, the, the factor they found that uh, inactivity affects outcomes, mm -hmm. wasn't just for depression people, it was across the board. Mm -hmm. So again, again, I think, I think this is a real uh, exciting pathway that they've identified here, going at, looking at activity, mm -hmm. but then again, there's no, nothing to suggest in their paper that we would stop at the line of having depression there. Yeah. No reason to suggest that people who don't have depression that are sub or below that aren't exercising wouldn't similarly benefit from perhaps we knew this needs to be tested. This was an observational study, mm -hmm. but that the exercise effect was an across-the-board effect. Mm -hmm. So should we should we stop there by by looking only narrowing us to think about activity and exercise in the in depression, or should we think about it more broadly? Yeah, I you know um, just just uh, one final follow-up. I mean, we have 
actually looked at a group of uh, 20,000 patients. Um, and so we've, we've learned so many things um, about this distinction of depression, uh, screening, and then actually treating the activated patient. And, and fortunately, in Kaiser, um, there are all the integrated programs under one roof. And, and I realize that is uh, hard to then generalize to what people do in other fee-for-service or community-based uh, um, uh, health systems. Um, but in any case, there is um, something that we're learning about how depression screening in a lot of people is actually misconstrued as um, uh, an actual assessment for the presence of um, the illness. And um, what will happen is people will do a PHQ-9, which monitors in addition for treatment response, et cetera, and will not then do the next step, uh, checking for a thyroid, checking for other comorbid mental, uh, mental illness, et cetera. And so um, I think that that distinction is one of the most important things that we're uh, emphasizing with people who ask us what happened with our group um, and um, and so I think I'm I'm learning too from uh, what your study is and and what people should um, do in the real world um, uh, definitely the idea that screening is some sort of uh, way of really diagnosing something is is a mistake that a lot of people are making great well mark this is David I want to thank you for your questions um, excellent questions, and uh, move on to the next caller if we can. Eric, would you, uh, Erica, would you please introduce the next caller? Certainly. Manav Gupta with Stony Brook Hospital has our next question. Uh, yes. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, thank you for arranging this audio conference first. Uh, my question is, is there any data on benefits of screening for depression and perhaps then treatment in patients uh, undergoing angioplasty, stenting, or cabbage? No. Not not on not on screening per se. Actually, actually, there were, there were if you look at data on actually screening as as uh, in a trial, for instance, no, there were no studies that crossed any cardiovascular care group that have actually looked at whether screening benefits patients. So we actually didn't find any of those studies. We kind of pieced together the components of screening. Uh, can you identify? Do we have detection tools, questionnaires that work reasonably well, and then can we treat it? And all those studies were from. Roy, well, you might add add to this. I think there was one study that included some angioplasty patients that was a small group, but most of them were not. Most of them were... Yes, so uh, so <clears throat> um, for the first what we call key question in our study, which looked at the accuracy of screening instruments for depression in cardiovascular care populations, um, and also for uh, what we would call our third key question that addressed the question that you're asking, Dr. Gupta, regarding um, systematic pres uh, screening um, in terms of whether it benefits patients, improves cardiac outcomes, et cetera, we identified um, about uh, well we divide, we identified exactly eight hundred and fifty eight studies of those we selected one hundred and one for reviewing the entire full text that fit our criteria um, and then eventually wound up with eleven studies of those eleven. Um, eight of the 11 were either uh, patients with acute coronary syndromes or patients who had, un who had undergone percutaneous coronary intervention. And so we defined cardiovascular care in our study broadly to include a cardiovascular diagnosis like MI or CHF uh, or an intervention like the kind that you're addressing. So um, all, if, you, if you put all cardiovascular care together, we still don't have any um, evidence of a benefit of the screening process per se, um, and if you look specifically at the individual procedures, with, which would be a subgroup of the overall cardiovascular care population, of course, we have uh, even less. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much, and thank you, Dr. Gupta, for your question. Erica, may we have the next caller, please? Certainly. Randall Williams with Faros Innovations has our next question. Uh, good afternoon. Thanks for the overview, and hello to Roy from uh, Hopkins. Hello. Um, I am curious about this uh, subgroup question that Dr. Gupta raised. I think you've delved into it a bit. Maybe you can explore it a little further. If there were 850 articles that were ultimately available for review and 11 were ultimately chosen for full review, on the topic of screening, I'm curious about the role of high-prevalence subgroups and whether or not your study either revealed or excluded or was methodologically unable to evaluate 
the value of screening instruments in high-risk subgroup populations such as congestive heart failure and or post-hospitalized acute MI patients where perhaps the prevalence rates uh, being as high as they are might uh, give us a different impression of the value of screeners. That's a, this is a, a Brett Toombs um, speaking. That, that's an excellent question, actually one that's interested us quite a bit. Um, so we, we actually looked into that before we figured out that the, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force actually, they, they published in 2002 a, a review of uh, depression screening for primary care, and they looked at that question and didn't find that they could, that isolating particular groups would, would um, improve the yield per se from screening. It would help you identify higher rates of patients with depression at a, more, more accurately that you could uh, then increase the efficacy of this. Now, we haven't done anything formally with this as far as uh, publishing, um, but we have actually gone through a couple of the databases we have access to with reasonably large populations and informally looked at um, different combinations uh, based on risk factors, you know, smoking or uh, sex and age and various combinations. And just found that, and then we were really hopeful that we could actually do something with that. We we weren't able to find any sort of combination that could um, that we could target that would make this much ac more accurate. And as far as the, it, it's kind of hard to find the higher prevalence groups. And the prevalence is pretty consistent across groups. If you, we did a systematic review on post MI um, a couple of years back, and it was about 20% based on a structured clinical interview for major depression. And if you look at other reviews um, for things like heart failure and some other conditions, they, they tend to run between, say, 15 and 25. They're pretty consistent across across groups. So I think it's, a, it's, an, it's an excellent question, one that we've actually pursued, again, at least informally. We haven't, been, we haven't found a way to do it. I might add in follow-up, in our experience in particular with CHF in the lower socioeconomic groups of Medicaid, we find a screener level prevalence uh, on the order of 35 to 40%. So suggesting to us that perhaps um, that group is a higher prevalence population and might be one that justifies screening. Now you're saying that's based on a screening tool, right? Correct. Now one thing, this is something that we often misunderstand, and I've just kind of figured this out. But if you think about screening tools, now we ha we have now we, again we have a diagnosis based on a structured interview as our gold standard, and then we use screening tools to try to identify people likely to have that diagnosis. If you think about a screening tool, an excellent screening tool is about 80% accurate. And we really don't get much better than that. So if we have our top-notch screening tool 80% accurate, think about this scenario. If you have a population where you have no cases of depression, it's, it's going to estimate 20% prevalence. Right. Because it'll misdiagnose 20. So, so it's hard. And, and, and then there's, there's some kind of tricky math games that go on with doing this. But you'll find even in populations of 5, 10, 15, you get these estimates that don't differ very much and they tend to be up around the 30s. So, and we found actually in a review to kind of contextualize that, we, we reviewed all post-MI studies which um, for prevalence and we looked at prevalence of major depression. This was published in the Journal of General Internal Medicine in 2006. And the prevalence of major depression was 20, about 20%. And then the prevalence based on the screening tool, say like, oh, the, based on the Beck depression inventory was, was over 30. So that, that, kind of, that kind of coincides with about a standard rate. So uh, this is this is uh, Dr. Zegelface. This is Roy Zegelfine again. So um, just to just to kind of summarize our, our our comments in relation to your question, Dr. Williams, it's a great question. We, we it's one that we have also thought of. And if you if you think of the analogy that I used before um, to uh, drunk drivers, um, this would be almost like profiling. And so instead of stopping every driver, we might uh, uh, profile certain people in certain who drive red cars, for example. Um, and pull them over around the holidays. That would be the next logical step if we say that screening the entire population is ill-advised. But the problem is right now we don't have any evidence that um, profiling, essentially, if you want to call it that, for depression screening um, works. Um, there's not enough evidence for or against it at this point. Great. Thank you, Dr. Ziegelstein, and thank you, Dr. Williams, for your question. Um, Erica, let's go on to the next caller, please. Certainly. Our next question comes from Danielle Strauss with Baylor Heart and Vascular Hospital. Actually, she had to leave. This is Mike Davis. I'm a chaplain at Baylor Heart and Vascular. We had, um, being aware of the uh, Joint Commission um, uh, goal number 15 for 2009 is 
the organization identifies patients at risk. Currently, we have on our admission database uh, uh, section where it asks patients if they're having, if they've had recent uh, life change events, uh, if they have uh, feelings of hopelessness or worthlessness, and the third question, do they have thoughts of suicide? Um, given what you've studied, and um, do you have some recommendations as to how we can fulfill the Joint Commission response, um, goals and also take, just take care of the patients in terms of that? Um, I'm not. Can you call it? I'm not familiar with the Joint Commission as goals. Um, can, you, can you clarify a little bit, or Roy, you might know already and could answer that a much. There are safety um, goals uh, pr uh, proposed by the Joint Commission for uh, 2009. So I, I, I'm familiar with the Joint Commission, and I'm familiar with their uh, goals, but I don't really know how to answer your question exactly. I, I think what you're asking is, in addition to these uh, excellent questions you're asking, um, that might target patients who are at risk for adverse outcome from a wide variety of um, health care issues, the, the, the things you brought up are recent changes and recent life changes, which might identify patients who have had uh, recent emotional stress. Um, you identified hopelessness and worthlessness, um, which I think might uh, identify a certain uh, subgroup of patients who uh, might have depression. And then suicidality, um, uh, of course, the way that that question is asked is also a very important um, uh, uh, aspect of things. I think that... Um, uh, um, uh, I'm not sure of other mental health-related issues that I personally would add to that list to fulfill uh, the JCO um, requirement. I think that um, the one thing that it occurs to me that you didn't ask is one of the more broad net uh, uh, questions, which is about sadness um, and also about anhedonia or um, the the um, the loss of interest in um, things that the the person found previously pleasurable, um, but um, but in terms of, uh, I don't know that uh, either Dr. Toombs or I is an expert, uh, in fact, I'm quite sure we're not, in uh, identifying uh, patients at risk for to fulfill JCO's uh, requirements. I'm sorry, we don't have JCO in Canada, that's all, I understand that. So I, I guess one of the things I wanted to follow, follow up in is, so we have this admission database that basically all patients are filling out at the time of admission, and you know, or let me run this by you. Is this a, is this a good idea um, that we review those at the time of admission, and then based on that, uh, we might do a PHQ, um, and then proceed from there as based uh, similarly to what the uh, AHA um, proposed in their recommendations. Does that sound like a good plan? Can you so when you so 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 you would how would you determine if you do a PHQ and then what happens after you do one? If they had checked off that they were having thoughts of suicide, if they had some uh, suicidal ideation or intentionality expressed on, in their admission database, or if they had uh, feelings of hopelessness or worthlessness, um, nursing staff or I or myself would then go ahead and do the PHQ-9, and then based on that, we would ask for a psych, psych consult or... So I, I, I'd like to answer that uh, just from a, this is Dr. Ziegelson. What I would say is um, I, I'm not sure that I would uh, say the next step would be a PHQ. I would just ask you a question. If the patient on the intake answers a question in the affirmative on another issue, for example, are, do you feel safe in the house or safe in your home situation, and the answer to that is no, um, how would I would ask you how would you respond to that if you were um, scoring that person's that person's intake questionnaire? What would you do next? I would ask them for more details. Yeah, and so I would say the same thing is true here. My question is who who should be asking them? So who actually takes the information that the patient fills out on admission and looks at it? Is it the nurse? Is it the physician? Is it the chaplain? Who who actually does it? The nursing staff does that. Okay, and if so, the nurse then would say it, she, uh, he or she is trained that if the answer is no to safety in the home, then then what does he or she do? She she inquires more. She, is she trained to do that, or does she call on an expert? Calls on an expert. Okay, so I would say the same thing is true here. I would say I would be as concerned about a patient who answers 
yes to I'm suicidal uh, as I would to a patient who says, no, I don't feel safe at home. And so I would say that rather than ad, uh, administering a PHQ-9, um, uh, apart from its potential value uh, in and of itself, uh, I would say that would not be the next step that I would do. If a person says uh, on the intake questionnaire, I am suicidal, I think that that should prompt an evaluation by somebody who's trained uh, to evaluate them more fully. Okay. Great. Mike, I want to thank you for your question and thank you for your answers. Erica, I think we have time for one more call. Certainly, and that call will come from Christian Helfrich with Veterans Administration. Hi there, Dr. Ziegelstein. Could you talk just a little bit about the follow-up period uh, for uh, cardiovascular events in those six studies? And what I'm asking is, uh, was that enough time? I see that uh, several of them were, were measured in weeks, and is that enough time to, to assess differences in cardiovascular outcomes? I see. I, I, uh, thanks for asking that question. Uh, and then I'll, I'll let uh, Dr. Toombs uh, answer as well. I think that's a really great question and uh, one that I think is a potential limitation um, to, uh, uh, to the evidence that is available to us at present. Um, what we know, obviously, is that most of the events that occur uh, after an acute coronary event occur in the first usually 24 weeks or so. Um, and so one would have expected to have seen uh, a difference if one um, were to exist. Um, <clears throat> and, and that's one of the reasons why, there are certainly others, one of the reasons why many of these studies stop around 24 weeks or so. Um, there are certainly uh, others. Um, but uh, I think that that is a potential limitation and it certainly is conceivable that uh, additional studies could be done in the future that use longer follow-up times both for depression treatment and also for assessing of cardiovascular or even depression outcomes. Um, uh, Dr. Toombs, do you have any additional comments about that? Yeah, I, th I think that in thinking about how to understand the, the outcomes here too, we have to also, so, so all the studies that, that uh, tested interventions, we, we listed them and listed uh, cardiovascular follow-ups, but, but there was really, there were really only two studies that were designed to look at cardiovascular outcomes. The other four were strictly designed to look at whether there were benefits in depression. So although, although we reported what they found, and I think you need to look at the minded, well, the two of the minded studies and the enriched studies were designed to look at that. Now the minded study went uh, six to, between six and 15 months of cardiovascular follow-up. Uh, it, it didn't, didn't have an, probably realistically retrospectively didn't have enough people in it to to look at that question very well. Uh, the rich study was highly powered for that. Uh, they they randomized 25 almost 2,500 people, about I think almost 1,900 of whom had depression. That's whom we've considered in our study, and they they looked at people between 18 and 48 months follow up. So, I think the short answer is there's really only been one one study that was well powered to look at that question, and there's not not more evidence than that. Great. All right. Well, thank you for your question. Um, actually, we have time perhaps for one more short question. Erica, do we have another caller on the line? We do. Uh, it's Jeffrey Migano with Psychological Center. Hi. Um, I, um, well, uh, two questions, but I'll just go with one since time's running out. Thank you, Jeffrey. Uh, um, when you think about the criteria you're applying to to judge whether there's good evidence for this type of screening. Do you think if you applied the same uh, schema or same criteria to um, other standard screening in primary care practice, um, do you think most of them would, would hold up or that there are others that are often done that uh, by habit of practice that, that might not um, also meet this grade. Thank you, Jeffrey. That's a great question. Roy, why don't, why don't you address that? I, I, would, I would love to address that. Um, thanks for the question. So, as you know, for preventive care services, for example, in primary care, there is the United States Preventive Services Task Force that uses exactly the same um, format that we used here. So I would say um, if, the, if the question is limited to um, would you say that we would that that these services would be recommended rather than done? Um, I think the answer is yes. It, it would hold weight in primary care as it would 
uh, here in cardiovascular disease settings. But let me answer actually the question you asked, which is would people, essentially, would people do them anyway? Um, so certainly there are some things that are done for preventive services that actually the USPSTF or United States Preventive Services Task Force does not endorse. For example, uh, my own children in the schools were screened for scoliosis, which is actually mm-hmm. not recommended. Um, so I think that there are certainly things that people might do as uh, either because they have the time or because they have the interest. I'm almost laughing when I use those two things because it turns out that we don't have time. You know, Dr. Yarnell from Duke uh, reported um, that uh, it would take over seven hours for the average uh, internist, the average person in, in primary care, to do all that would be required just of preventive services for an average panel. Cardiologists don't have the time either. And the other thing is that they don't have the interest in general in depression screening. So we combine this lack of time with lack of interest, and I would say that our study is just the sort of thing that is needed because it's not going to get done otherwise without hard evidence. Great. Thank you, Dr. Ziegelstein, and thank you for your question, Jeffrey. I'll just add my brief editorial comment. In the world of primary care medicine, I think prostate cancer screening is an example um, really of exactly what you were talking about, um, a service that's not recommended necessarily by U.S. Preventive Services Task Force that many of us do uh, for whatever set of reasons one could hypothesize. So, well, thank you very much. So uh, it's time really to close, and I want to thank all of you callers for your questions. It's been an absolutely great discussion, uh, good issues brought out. And, again, I want to uh, thank Dr. Ziegelstein and thank Dr. Toombs again for both their work uh, and being on the call with us today. I'd like to give each of you uh, about 30 seconds for one additional comment, if you'd like to do so. Um, uh, 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 sorry, sorry. Uh, okay. I'll just comment and say thank you for the uh, for the interest in our paper and our work, uh, and for the topic. And thanks for your very stimulating uh, uh, conversation. And we hope to uh, we hope that more research in this area clarifies some of the issues that currently are a little bit murky. And I, uh, second that, and I appreciate the interest in this topic and the questions people have. And I, and I, I see this also as, as an exciting time and. and um, in a transformational time, we have a, a paradigm out there that we've been looking to, and it doesn't seem to work. But there, there are a lot of other options we can look at. And I think Dr. Hooley's paper recently looked at enhanced exercise and um, other potential options that we can do to help patients uh, cope with uh, and do better when they have uh, with cardiovascular disease. So I think it's an exciting time, and I think our our paper can help us make a transition into looking for for things that that'll work a lot better for patients. Great. Thank you, Dr. Toombs, and uh, thank you again, Dr. Ziegelstein. I want to remind all of us that Author in the Room is a monthly program that takes place on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. Our next discussion will take place on January 21st. Our featured author will be Dr. David Jenkins discussing his recently published article, The Effect of a Low Glycemic Index Versus a High Serial Fiber Diet on Type 2 Diabetes, a Randomized Trial. Again, this series is sponsored both by the Journal of the American Medical Association and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Author in the Room is an interactive conference call designed to accelerate changes in clinical practice to improve patient outcomes. Thanks to all of you again for being part of Author in the Room, and have a good day.